Through Balpin to Twitter, Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his fortnightly appearance in the program. It's his own fortnightly appearance in the program. He is the lead prospect analyst emeritus of Fangraphs.com, currently a contributor to that same site. It is Kylan McDaniel. Kylan McDaniel is the guest on this program. He discusses players who are currently amateurs, but in 2018, will almost certainly, or uh, at least probably, become professionals. Amateurs, current amateurs, are going to become professionals. A few weeks ago, as part of the site's inaugural Prospects Week, Eric Longenhagen and Kyler McDaniel himself published a list of the top prospects for the 2018 draft. More recently than that, even, uh, McDaniel provided updates on many of those same top draft prospects a couple weeks into what is essentially both the prep and the college seasons. I asked Kylie not only about some of the specific players who've been updated, uh, but also about uh, maybe some of the larger trends that are emerging. One of the larger trends uh, is uh, what Kylie characterizes as a banner year for amateur prospects in Florida. I asked him what constitutes a banner year, I suppose not just for Florida, but any other region for that matter. Also, are there certain areas that might unexpectedly produce more per capita talent than would otherwise be expected? Certain places that are not, for example... Uh, simply California, Texas, Florida, etc. Uh, also, finally, uh, not prep or college talent, but international talent. Uh, McDaniel recently took a trip to the Dominican Republic for Major League Baseball's international showcase. I asked him about certain players there, how many of those players that he saw are rumored to have been signed, not necessarily in an official capacity, uh, but will be signing with a particular team on July 2nd. We also discuss the, uh, the rare case of the 18-year-old Latin American prospect. Of course, 18 is the youngest age at which many players in the States sign for Latin American prospects. However, it's considered old. Why is that the case? I ask him. He has a reason. Unexpectedly, he has a reason. And uh, he will give that reason and all of his other responses in the conversation that follows before we get to that conversation. Uh, It is both my privilege and also my professional obligation to remind everyone that Fangraphs memberships exist. For a reasonable sum, readers of Fangraphs.com can acquire a membership that it helps to support the uh, excellent work that appears in those electronic pages. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, readers can acquire an ad-free membership, which not only supports the excellent work, but also uh, uh, what it does is it allows one to surf Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, but also allowing one to uh, escape the distortive effects of uh, advertising. So uh, there it is. It's Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership. Available only at Fangraphs.com, of course, by going there and then clicking around. Okay, uh, with that advertisement now complete, let us move on to our conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Lead prospect analyst emeritus, Kyle McDaniel. And when does it begin? Right now. good let's talk about your travels wait can, can you check my levels no we don't uh unnecessary what about my mid and my base mm-hmm. base base i'm like that guy in boys to men base dylan's gonna hate me <laughs> all right sorry go ahead you recently went to the dominican republic and i don't think i knew that you were doing that until when well, you were going through customs essentially yeah i think you were asking me something and i said don't bother me i'm going through customs and you mm-hmm. You displayed incredulity that I was allowed 
to enter customs? Yeah, to leave the country. Or well, I guess to get through one. customs is what, you, is what you were surprised about. Well, first of all, I think you did what I consider to be a bit of a... Um, Humble brag. To be, to be a bit of a move, which is you, you, you reached out to me just before you were going to customs so that when I responded, you were then able to say, don't bother me, I'm going through customs. <laughs> I'm See now I want to care, uh, now I want to pull up this conversation because I I don't think that's what I was going trying to, to a do foreign country but I can't rule out that that's what I was trying to do no that's fine uh, I would worry about you that's not what you were trying to do but no, you I'm gonna fact check going... you this isn't gonna be some sort of gotcha thing all right well manage if you can manage to be looking it up in the background what I want to ask you is uh, now obviously it is uh, clearly there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, baseball talent in the Dominican Republic but what is there any significance to going this time of year you know mid mid late February. Yes, I went. I went for a specific reason. Are you allowed to? Uh, to what? I mean, are you allowed to divulge the entire? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. Entire... It wasn't. It wasn't a secret thing. I wasn't going for vice to like meet a drug dealer or something. I mean, I did that, but that, that wasn't the reason I went. Yeah. Nor was it for vice. Yeah. Okay. Well, you don't know about that yet either. We we can talk uh, offline yeah. after this. Offline. Uh, no. So every year, MLB. Well, not every year for the last I think six years. Mm-hmm. MLB has an event in the Dominican where they get the best players from Latin America that are July 2 eligible for that coming July 2. So just just the upcoming signing year and, you know, puts them all in one field. And they've gone through various, how would I say this, cycles of being able to get the very best players to show up. And then some years the players don't show up and then MLB kind of redoubles their efforts to pressure the Buscones that, hey, even though you've got a deal, you still got to come. So there's always somebody that's going to get two million or more that doesn't show up, and I think this year there's only two, maybe three missing. So it was a pretty good showing. Mm-hmm. And in the past, to give you some context, I believe the first one I went to had Glaber Torres, Eloy Jimenez, and Ozzy Albies. And they're all, I mean, at this point, they're all top ten prospects, right? Yeah, and okay. I, I'll, I'll tell one quick story. Uh, okay. So after that event. I don't know, a month or two later when I ranked July 2 guys, I believe not for fan graphs. No, I know not for fan graphs. I ranked Glaber Torres number one and Eloy Jimenez number two. And I believe Baseball America had them the other way around. But it seemed, at least to me and Ben Bather, those are the two best guys. And I, I preferred Torres. A general manager that was signing some players that year ridiculed me for, for picking Glaber Torres the next time he saw me and said, Glaber Torres, number one, are you kidding me? This guy's like a 6'1", shortstop, can't play short, doesn't have power. And uh, so I made fun of the players that guy signed. And I was like, I'm telling you, I, I think he's the best guy. And he was like, I don't know, man. And then, you know, lo and behold, the two guys I had at the top were, at least so far, seemed to be the two best guys. And and the yeah, guys that this, this guy signed were, were not very good. Wait, what, congratulations, Kylie? <laughs> No, well, it, no, it was especially notable because if that would have happened other years, there wouldn't have been a top 50 prospect and it wouldn't have been clear that this guy was good and this guy's bad. And that you like typically this takes five or six years, I think, because then those guys at that point would be 21 and would have to, you know, be on or off of a 40 man. If they're really, really good, they're at the AAA or the big leagues like you kind of need five years. But this became clear within like two years that like, oh, yeah, Jimenez and Torres are both pretty good. So what's the... So but but it... hold on, to, to cut into that, uh, I remember when I wrote up Ozzy Albies for Fangraphs after he had his crazy debut in short season, I had never seen him before. Mm-hmm. And so I asked an international friend, I was like, hey, this guy didn't get seen a lot. He only played in the Appalachian League. What's he like? He goes, you've seen him before. And I go, really? He's like, yeah, he was at that thing with, with Torres and Jimenez. Like, he's on the roster. And I was like, oh, man, I got to go back and look at my notes. And next to Ozzy Albies, it said, five foot five, question mark, question mark, question mark. Those are my notes for the entire event. Because <laughs> I think we've spoken about this with Fernando Tatis. Sometimes these guys are, like, 
good. They show you some ability. I believe both of those players, Tatis and Albies, both signed for three hundred grand, which basically means they showed you a tool or two. And so that's what they signed for, and that's what everybody thought they were at the time. And sometimes they just get twitchier and better and just, like, you know, reach a new stratosphere. Like, you know, Christian Pache signed for a million if he was, you know, eligible a year and a half later but was, you know, seen as a 17-year-old and had those tools, he would have gotten, you know, four or five million. Like, sometimes they just dramatically get better, like high school sophomores get better as high school juniors at the same age. So, yeah, that I guess we'll even out the back padding with the... <laughs> With totally whiffing on a guy who a year later I was like bullishly behind and didn't even notice him. So that I mean, this brings up another question. One of the now we know that sometimes amateur players or you know prep high school players will I suppose what in a sense bet on themselves and go to college instead of you know they might be drafted out of high school but perhaps they receive a bonus that they do not consider to be ideal for, for their circumstances right. And perhaps they go on to a junior college so they could be drafted next year. Or maybe they go on to, to a four-year university and think, well, after my junior year, I, you know, I think I can get more if I, if I go to, to college a little bit. And so, in some, so there, there are at least examples of uh, amateur players essentially betting on themselves by going to college. You know, it's to, it's to some degree. Do you ever come across circumstances where that happens for Latin American players? Where, I mean, you mentioned here a couple of situations with Pache, who, who is, he's in the, the Atlanta system, right? Correct. Right, yeah. and as is Albies. Yeah, there's not really an example of that because since these players don't have the leverage of college, there's nothing to be gained by waiting. Like, it is, right. it is common to see a player in an open workout that's 18 years old, and the first thing the scout says, like, during the workout, when, you know, normally you'd say, oh, he's 88 to 92, pretty solid. I'll be like, yeah, but he's 18. Like, he, he's, he's kind of old. Right. Which, of course, in America, you're 18 versus 21, high school versus college. 18 is seen as, you know, obviously the youngest player available. And in the Dominican, like I, all right, so an, an example of that, I, one of the teams I worked for, I was in the Dominican watching our DSL team. After the game was over, uh, they would typically have local Buscones, agents, whatever you want to call them, bring their best players by just for like a quick workout. And so this guy brought two pitchers. And so they both threw bullpens next to each other. And they were basically the guy you signed for 25 grand out of a junior college at the end of the draft. I think they were 18 and 19 and they both threw like 90, 93 with like an average breaking ball that would flash a little better. Command was a little below some effort, a little bit of projection, pretty loose arm, like a pretty sort of generic, like short season reliever that if, you know, with the right instruction, all that kind of stuff, he gets an extra tick or two of velocity, then he, you know, might be a prospect, but not really a consequential guy. And so the guys on sort of staff in the Dominican, because I was kind of floating at this point, were like, all right, what do you think of that guy? And I was like, well, he's like the guy he signed for 25000 in America, so can we sign him for 5000 They go, yeah, we can probably get him for 1000 And I was like, okay, so what do we, you know, I guess we see him again to create some history. They're like, no, nah, we just send him back. Like, we're not going to sign that guy. Like, then why did you ask me? And they're like, well, we wanted you to see them and like have some context for what this means. But at this age, you sign the junior college kid that's 19 to kind of keep your area scout engaged. And because, wow. you know, because you have to sign, you have 15 area scouts. So, and you're going to sign three or four from one of them each year. And so to get one for each area scout, you have to sign 30, you know, 30 players in a draft or 25 or whatever. And internationally, they're all kind of seen as the same. It's like, oh, your DSL team has 30 players and then, you know, seven graduate to the rookie team the next year. And you have to get them assimilation stuff and you got to teach them English and you got to get them a visa and, you know, all that kind of thing. And so it's like they just rather have the American guy than the Latin guy, even for, you know, $10,000 less or whatever the difference in the bonus is. So, like, I asked 
this guy and I've asked multiple guys actually asked the director at the at the MLB event like how many big leaguers do you think or do you think there are any big leaguers that are just completely missed because they're 18 or 19 and nobody's paying close enough attention to them to notice it and he goes almost every year maybe every two years there's a guy like Rafael Montero was one of them that signed at 18 or 19 it was like in the big leagues a year later and was essentially mm-hmm. passed over but because he threw at the right event and peaked at the right time and people happened to be paying attention to him he made the big leagues like really quickly he's like obviously we're missing somebody if every team had five dsl teams we would miss everybody but that's not what we're doing and i think i mean if i'm not mistaken gregory polanco signed a bit on the later side didn't he the guys that the pirates signed in that period it was alan hansen dilson herrera greg polanco starling Marte. there might have been one other one where they had like a, a run of like five prospects in two or three years all of them signed like at least six months after july too which you could say is a show of skill on the scouting side or that they got lucky that these guys were available six months later and, right. you know, but they all signed for bonuses, like I think over a hundred thousand. So, uh, you know, often, not often, but at least a handful of times a year, a guy will say he wants 250,000. He's only getting offered 50,000. He'll wait until he gets something close. This is the version of the waiting you're talking about where they, they're just not getting close to what they feel like their value is. And, you know, they're in a third world country might only get paid once in their whole life. So they, they want to try to get their value. And so sometimes it's because they haven't fully developed. And then the thing that happened with Albies or with Pache, like the, the Twitch arrives. And then all of a sudden they become, even at age 17 or 18, a two or $300,000 prospect. And they get their money, even at that, you know, huge discount because of their age. And often that will happen at not a public workout, but a private one. And then the first team that happens to see them signs them. Because you would say, oh, well, they're getting all these players for 200000 and end up being huge prospects. Why don't we get all those? It's like, well, when it happens, nobody lets them leave the complex. And if it's an open workout, then you get some sort of bidding war, but it might be late in the process when not everybody has money. There was a story that I may end up writing if I can get all the principals to talk about it. But there was one team that had an open workout at their academy. Every team had a scout there. A guy gets on the mound and the team whose academy it was was looking at his trackman stuff during his warm-up pitchers. Mm-hmm. And the trackman guy starts waving his hand and pulls the director over while the guy's still warming up and says, look at these spin rates. He's just warming up. Like, what is this guy going to get half a million? He goes, no, this guy's 18 or 17 or 18 or whatever it was. You get him for 10000 right now. And he goes, we don't have anybody in the complex that can do this. And so the director looks down to the dugout where the agent is for this pitcher. And, you know, the first five pitchers that had pitched in this event, like, weren't really signable. The teams kind of passed on him. And he flashes a 10, like, two palms at the guy. Mm-hmm. And the agent goes, okay. And they pull him off the mound before he gets to pitch in the game. And the other 50 scouts down there are like, hey, what's going on? And before the scouts found out what happened, he had signed a contract in, in like, the room of the academy to sign with that team. And he became an actual prospect worth And that know, player was? Well, I don't, I don't want to say it yet, but it, oh, okay. it's a player that has already been mentioned in prospect list stuff so far is worth, you know, 10, 15 million dollars. Yeah, that made me that made me it makes that sound. That's an exciting story. I mean, it's I feel like it may be exploitative at some level, but at the same time, uh, it feels like someone pulled it. It seems like there was a trick pulled. Well, and this is this is why you uh, you do little things like, for instance, teams domestically will try to get showcases or college games to happen at their minor league field because then they get to own the TrackMan data and they can choose to trade it to other teams, but they own it. And so in the Dominican, if you have some Cuban work out at your field, because you'll see like, oh, Juan Pablo Martinez is working out at the Giants complex and people will always ask whoever reports it like, oh, does that mean the Giants have the inside track? It's like, no, maybe the agent's friends with the guy that runs that complex. Well, they get all the data, too, and they're probably not going to trade it. But there's, you know, I wouldn't say like an arms race, but teams are very aware of this. Like when you see that like East Coast Pro was at the Yankees Florida State League Stadium for a couple of years, like they kept all that data and they didn't trade it unless somebody offered them something really good and they had an advantage, you know, data wise. 
so it's uh, but there's certain teams especially in the Dominican that don't even have a trackman unit so they're you know there's some low-hanging fruit there if you sort of run you know that area like you do other areas now let me ask you 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 mentioned that there were a number of scouts it sounds like there are quite a few scouts there who were watching oh, yeah, every every team had five scouts there it was a lot of people and and we're t- but we're talking about something as you, as you noted spin rate right which is obviously this is something you can measure with a trackman type system radar type system how long does it take or what position is necessary for one to assume to observe an elite or above average spin rate from a pitcher is there a way to see it how does it manifest itself as in somebody without a unit noticing this stuff yeah it's really it's basically impossible you can obviously grade a pitch on the 2080 scale and i would say more times than not it will you know if you say a pitch is a 60 it's better than 50 50 that the spin rate will be above average Mm-hmm. But there's obviously the spin rate measured by TrackMan uh, is just the raw spin rate. There's also spin efficiency. And the spin efficiency, uh, which it doesn't measure, you don't have unless you're using Rapsoda, which in game environments you can't use. So you're, yeah. kind of, you're kind of guessing at that point. The spin efficiency is what affects the break. So the thing the scout is grading is essentially the break, which is spin efficiency. But the thing TrackMan's giving you is overall spin rate, which they sort of have different pluses and minuses as far as evaluating, but essentially measuring two different things that sometimes match up and sometimes don't. And then there's times where a guy has a huge spin rate with huge efficiency, and it just doesn't look as attractive to the scout as it does to TrackMan, which is, you know, rarer. But usually, the I, I would say, I don't know, three quarters of the time, these things match up if you have all the data in front of you, but there's just certain times where it doesn't. Is that is that the sort of thing where if you have the say this there's this pitcher with a particularly high spin rate, say say it's on his fastball, right, and say it is somewhat efficient the uh, the spin. Is that a, is that a situation where you might notice it from batter reactions? Like if you get a lot of if you get the fastball, if you get players swinging under a high fastball a bunch, which is typically the I think probably the most noticeable effect of, for example. A, a fastball with a high spin rate is that it gets it gets swinging strikes up in the zone. Yeah, you don't always know what it is. Like there's, uh, I'm talking more about breaking balls when I talk about the spin efficiency and okay, breaking right, stuff. Yeah. With fastballs, it's a little it's a little more sort of, especially if you have a high a high slot, you're gonna have closer to a direct front to back rotation, which will give you 100 percent spin efficiency. So that's not quite as important for a fastball. But the stuff you're talking about, where you know Koji Uehara throws 90 91 but gets swings and misses on his fastball, we we talked about this before I went to the Braves. That there's the sort of plane to the plate, mm-hmm. like out of the pitcher's hand becomes a big part of that and i've found that i'm not very good even when i have the data next to me at saying what the plane will be i know what the three or four inputs are it's you know sort of like arm slot location like high or low in the strike zone the extension down the mound if the pitch rises or sinks so like you can notice each of the inputs to a degree and if they're all above average then the plane will probably be you know above average however you're measuring that but as far as like predicting exactly why it's happening it could be deception, like he hides the ball, you know, behind his body well, which obviously TrackMan can't measure, or, you know, his arm slot for these two pitches is similar, which it can, or, you know, he grunts when he throws his change up, which obviously it can't. Like, there, there's uh, something that I would talk about as measurable deception and unmeasurable deception. And it, if once you get past sort of spin efficiency and spin rate and break and the sort of things like that, then you get into these sorts of deception, which are a little tougher to measure in a lot of cases. And swings and misses for 16-year-olds are less predictive than swings and misses from big leaguers. If a guy's oh, getting right. a, a bunch of swings and misses in the big leagues, you know something's going on. Whereas, yeah. you know, even in college, you could just be facing terrible hitters. That's a good point. One of the many that I, that I failed to consider 
this event that you're discussing, what is the name of the event? Uh, I or believe it's, what is the yeah, name? I believe it's the MLB International Showcase. They they have individual Dominican and Venezuelan ones to sort of select the two teams, and then they um and they have a joint one. the The individual ones I think are like November, December, somewhere October, right around there. And then yeah, this joint one is in uh, usually late January to early February. What is uh, I mean, how how does that work on a logistical level now in, in Venezuela? Well, they don't have it in Venezuela anymore. I believe it was in oh, okay. Curacao. Sometimes they have okay. stuff in Colombia. That seems to be the two places where they do it now. But with Venezuelan players, though? A lot of them, well, I don't know, maybe half of them will train the Dominican, or at least train, you know, coming up around this. Or maybe, like, uh, for instance, the trainer for Kevin Maiton has, like, moved his operation to the Dominican. He, like, you know, has this whole big academy, presumably off of, you know, the uh, commission on Maiton. But, th- yeah, that's not super odd to at least have a partnership with somebody in the Dominican or move your whole operation or whatever. Because, obviously, if, if the big wigs for the teams aren't going to Venezuela, then you, you need to really do a good job as far as either having a really good player or marketing him or bringing him to the events or all that kind of stuff. Because, you know, a lot of directors won't even go to Venezuela. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I My uh, my knowledge of, like, cli- I mean, it's, you know, incredibly vague, my knowledge of, like, the uh, political climate. I know of a scout who's been going there for 20 years that uh, has been in a Venezuelan jail multiple times and now doesn't go. That I mean, that doesn't sound... I mean, any sort of jail you're trying to avoid, but uh, yeah, yeah, I assume that that's, you know, less pleasant <laughs> would be my guess. But like, for example, my town you mentioned is from... It, he appears to be from a town called uh, Puerto Cabello. Cabello, I apologize. Uh, Puerto Cabello. I apologize for everything, but in particular this right now. So I, I don't know. Like, is it? Uh, do you have a sense? Like in in Venezuela, is it is it mostly like Caracas where things are difficult, or is it uh, is it pretty widespread in terms of I don't know. I mean, general like difficulties for these you know young men in general, in in particular you know. Yeah, I, I think players. it's in in general. I think it's obviously concentrated in the bigger cities where the you know essentially there's more people, so there's going to be more discord or however you want to describe yeah, it. But right. I, I know at one point. I want to say about a year ago when things were starting to get bad, they would say, oh, well, this guy's in this part of the country. So that's a little easier to go to. You don't have to go through Caracas or right, or, okay. or maybe, maybe it was Maracaibo was bad and Caracas wasn't. I remember which one was which, but they would name off, you know, Valencia, Maracaibo, a couple different places. They'd be like, well, this one's not quite as bad. You know, since a smaller town or they're not quite as political here or whatever. Right. But it sounds like it's gotten so bad everywhere that it's, you know, there, I mean, there's teams that will sign a July 2 kid out of Venezuela and they don't want him going back once he's in pro ball because it's like, you know, he might get shot or they might try to rob him or we don't want his family there or. Yeah, well, that, that was the second question I was going to ask is, is there, yeah. are there any sort of provisions at this point for like a, in particular, a particularly sought after Venezuelan prospect? Are there provisions for essentially protecting the family? Because I imagine, I mean, I'm sort of, again, vaguely familiar with you know, uh, like sort of blackmailing type situations, right? Uh, yeah, for, um, from what I know, not not a lot of players, especially early in their career, have their entire family just moved to America. Like I think right, they're okay. the families from what the situations I know of are just more comfortable being there. Mm-hmm. And I I think the instances I've heard about are generally when it's like a multi year big leaguer that's already gotten to free agency has a lot of money and. You know, the family's been separated for the 10 years of his, you know, pro career. And, and now there's sort of more to lose from kidnappings and things like that. But it it's not as common as you would guess, given the sort of climate. But, you know, obviously it would be weird if I told you you can't live in, I don't know, Vermont or Maine or whatever weird country you're in now. It's not a country, actually. It's a, <laughs> it's a pretty well-known 
I was trying. Yeah, I was, I was Not trying, very trying to draw the yeah. parallel that you're. Yeah, you I have, see the parallel. Yeah. yeah, you know, again, examining once again the uh, the annals in which of the ways in which I'm an idiot. I did not realize that Aruba, Curacao, and I, I guess Bonaire, which is another uh, province essentially of uh, the Netherlands, they're they're so very close to Venezuela. I also did not know that. I didn't realize until recently when somebody was telling me like, "Oh, if you if you ever go to Venezuela, you should come to Aruba, Curacao, and here's you know the hotel to stay and stuff like that." I'm like, "Those are next to each other." They're like, "Yeah, check the map." I'm like, "Oh, I obviously haven't been down there." Yeah, yeah. And I was like, "Oh, yeah, that makes sense." Yeah, I know the some some teams will work out Venezuelan players when they want to you know bring their director down and do that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Is they'll you know bring them to Curacao or, you know, bring them to the Dominican. Like there's a, yeah. there's a, there's a way for a Venezuelan prospect to stay in Venezuela and then just sort of come out when he needs to until he gets his deal. Oh, very interesting. So, so let's actually talk about, now this is for that particular event. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what did you see in terms of talent? Well, I, you also, you, you mentioned the, this is sort of ongoing thing with especially the, the highest end talent actually appearing there. Has there been any movement so far as you can see, or so far as you know, in terms of the, the the dates at which players are agreeing to deals before actually the July 2, you know, the the actual beginning of the signing period? It's been pretty consistent uh, in the CBA that the very best players will get done 10 to 18 months early. Mm-hmm. And then the sort of, you know, second tier guys will, you know, I guess, let's see, this event's happening in February. They sign July, so that's five months. The scouts jokingly for years have called this event pro scouting. It's essentially like watching like a minor league all-star game. Like, oh, these are all the guys you can't have that are already with other teams. Like, mm-hmm. you'll have to trade for them. And I, I don't know the exact number because I haven't chased down every guy, but I would imagine at least three-quarters of the players at this event have deals already, maybe more. It's been like that for a while. It almost seems like it's actually an event designed – not for most of the people who are in attendance, but like precisely for you. It's great who, for me. <laughs> yeah, because like if you know if there are as you as you suggest if there are a lot of scouts there, but and yet they know that many of the players are already spoken for. It's only of so much use to those scouts. However, for you, you, you here's the talent of you know what is possibly the the cream of the incoming July two crop. Yeah, and also like the the teams are chosen by MLB, and MLB has scouts like the scouting bureau and. Mm-hmm. Like, they're obviously not going to be the best scouts or else they'd probably work for teams. And some teams have hired scouts from there. So it's not to say they're all terrible or something. But, you know, obviously, if they show some level of scouting acuity, then they're then going to go on and work for a team if they're interested in scouting. And so some scouts have speculated that the only way that MLB can fill these rosters with only the best players is they just learn who has deals and then invite them once they hear that they have a deal. And everyone that's got a deal for, you know, above 500,000 gets invited. And then 80% of those guys show up. I don't know if that's the case, but... Some people think that, and obviously the rosters being, you know, whatever it is, 20 of the top 30 players or something like that, like that would seem to suggest that there is some level of understanding. Is the relationship, like being a scout for a club versus being a, in particular, an international scout for a club versus for the scouting bureau, is that like what, uh, you know, 20 years ago, the difference between being a film actor versus a TV actor? Well, so there used to be a scouting bureau for pro and high school and colleges, and then they mm-hmm. recently got rid of it, like in the last three, four years. How many so, how many people were employed under that umbrella? I want to say the pro group was like 
six to ten and amateur was like the 15 area scouts essentially it was something mm-hmm. like that and then i think the mlb realized that the teams weren't using the scouting reports for reasons I already covered even though i know of scouts that are good that have been hired from the bureau so not to say they're all bad but the teams use the bureau for like the video you see on the draft broadcast that's the bureau's video scouts that just go to a game and set up a camera and take video for you so the teams use that and one team i worked for told me the bureau scouting reports are good for the date and the velocity and we just throw everything else out Hmm. so that was the way it was looked at or if for instance you're looking for a guy in a in a minor in a trade and you have zero reports on him you'll check out the bureau report and just see what that guy's got but it was it was not really used and teams were sort of paying into a central fund to keep it going and i think eventually the teams are like can, can you just give us the video and 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 then also i think they also will do some like vision tests or you know medical background so that all 30 teams don't have to do it there'll be like a standardized one that all the teams have access to so i think eventually the teams the sort of message i was told from one of the teams i worked for eventually i think all the other teams were telling him i'll be like hey can we can we focus on the video and the administrative stuff because we don't want to be funding these reports we've, we've kind of got our own staff but then internationally obviously there's a lot more um you know you have to do drug testing and um and checking you know birthdays and all that kind of stuff so you need to know who the players are earlier and until they have a deal the teams don't necessarily want to tell you and then mlb wants to sort of standardize the scouting process they want to have events they have to identify these guys and then often you have to go into a city to get all the documentation so why not have a scout that can also watch the guy and write a report on him so it just it just made more sense to to also do this okay so i don't i don't want to be in a situation where i ask you essentially to elaborate on every player you saw but do you have uh, I'm, is there I'm not going to do that. Yeah, that's I don't think that makes sense. Is there one player you saw or two players you saw of interest for some reason? If not necessarily this is the best player, but here's a player who's maybe improved at the same time or particularly resembles a, you know, a, a present major league or something along that. Along yeah, I can lines. give you a little brief overview. So at, pretty much every time I come to the I think I've been to 5 of 6 or something of these events. There's always I don't know, three or four sort of million dollar shortstops in quotes that may not be shortstops in pro ball because, you know, they're 15 or 16. So you don't know how their frames will develop. And that was that was the case in this one. Also, I could throw some names at you. We got mm-hmm. no- Noel V. Marte, who, who trains with uh, your favorite trainer, Banana. Uh-huh. Noel V. Marte? Yeah, like Noel with a V-I on the end. Uh, Marco Luciano, Orelvis Martinez. Mm-hmm. Those are the sort of three shortstops that are, you know, up at the, sorry, I'm looking at my notes right now, up at no, the tippy okay. top. Yeah. There was a catcher with a ridiculous arm. Mm-hmm. Both, actually, two of them. Uh, one is named Diego Cartaya from Venezuela. Those three shortstops were all Dominican, by the way. He can hit, has a little power, seems to be a pretty good defender, and also has a plus arm. There's also a catcher named Antonio Gomez, who had some of the best pop times I've ever recorded. So he has an 80 arm, but a little rougher in some other areas. He's also Venezuelan. Antonio and then Gomez. I think. I think the most notable thing about this event, which it sounds like is also notable about this year's class in general, is the amount of velocity. So normally in these events, there will be two or three pitchers who basically show you average stuff. And of those two or three, one, maybe two of them will be projectable where you can say, hey, this guy's got now average stuff. He's 15 or 16. You might be able to project plus stuff. I mean, how much you like him. Seven-figure guy. Traditionally, of like the top 10 bonuses in any given July 2 class, one of them is a pitcher, sometimes zero. So you kind of expect, and since the pitchers are all 16, like they're a little behind the hitters. The hitters, for some reason, just show physical skills more quickly than the pitchers can show velocity. So typically, you'll expect to see two or three pitchers that could throw in the low 90s and have, you know, some stuff or some idea where it's going. So at this event, we had three guys throw really hard. One guy was 91-94. 
with an above average curveball and a decent changeup in through strikes, a Cuban named OCL Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. We had another Cuban uh, named Sandy Gaston. Both of these guys are 16, who was up to 97. Whoa. And then we had another 16-year-old from the Dominican named Starlin Castillo that was up to 97. I don't think I've ever seen – or he was actually uh, – Castillo was 15 for three more days. He's now 16. But he's 15 from the video I put on Twitter. So a lot of scouts have been saying, like, we haven't really seen guys throw this hard at this age. Especially these guys are all known to be – I knew these were the names to look for. Uh, a lot of guys maybe will hit a 95 or 96 once. And then any other time you see him, they'll be 89, 91. Because obviously, you know, they're young and things vary. But these guys all throw really hard. And Osiel Rodriguez is the best of those three because he could throw strikes and the stuff was almost as good as the other two. Whereas Castillo was sort of a one-pitch guy with okay command but didn't really show enough speed pitch. And Gaston, I think, threw five pitches to the backstop. <laughs> so that was a little less exciting. But I had somebody on Twitter ask me, like, oh, so this guy, you know, it's Ricky Vaughn. I go, the funny thing is I saw Lance McCullers' first start of his draft spring, and he did the same thing. So, like, this is not a disqualifying thing. Like, this happens sometimes when, you know, guys have a velocity spike and don't quite know where it's going. And they think, oh, if I throw 97, I'll get a ton of money. When it's really throw 93 and put it in the strike zone, you'll probably get a little more money. But they're just throwing as hard as they can. So, I mean, we know that, at least I think we know, that one of the reasons that pitchers in in affiliated ball have exhibited higher velocities is because, well, there's been greater emphasis on it, and uh, and there's more, uh, I think there's more in the way of, you know, weighted ball programs and, and training. There's a sort of mecha- mechanical stuff and, yeah, focus on it. Teams are valuing it this way, and so I think coaches that are coaching these kids are teaching them to value it, too. But is that, I mean, is that the same case? Is that the same thing, too, uh, among Latin American prospects? I don't know this specifically. I didn't ask that question. I have to think it is. I, I don't get the impression that these guys are doing all the different driveline methods of, you know, warming up with weighted balls and, you know, swinging for the fences every time. But this market has always been focused on tools and projection. So it, it always was more hitting the ball in the air and batting practice and trying to throw as hard as you can than high school or college ever was. So it was it was kind of ahead of the curve in that way in, in mm-hmm. introducing those things. And then in the last five or 10 years, we've had more games and leagues that play games break out to where there's now been a little more of a focus on well if this guy can't hit a curveball we're going to find out where sometimes you could hide a guy and only have him in workouts but not put him in games and nobody would know or it'd be harder to tell so it, it moved away from that a little bit but now i think that that stuff has gotten to high school so it's only a matter of time before you're going to see you know every latin pitcher when they're 15 and 14 throwing weighted balls and i know some guys do i know a chapman said he did when he's in cuba and he still does so it's not like this this stuff has never been down there i know a lot of guys would warm up with uh, softballs which i guess way more and are bigger so yeah it's, it's not it's not in the in the traditional way maybe not as widespread as it is in america but it's definitely always existed down there in, in some form and i imagine it'll it'll get more and more like that as high school and college in the big league sort of continues changing it's interesting how you note like that the the game at its highest level in the major leagues has at some level gravitated towards what one um, had been maybe accustomed to seeing already in the amateur showcase right where you have you know greater as you noted like greater velocity at least like relative to each player's like actual you know talent level you know, greater emphasis on velocity, greater emphasis on getting the ball in the air. It reminds me, I remember like 1998, actually while I was on a trip with my school's baseball team as a senior in high school, I remember just happening to watch from, you know, 1998. Yeah, I guess the the McDonald's All-American High School game from that year. And I just remember- You weren't invited to it? No, no, against all odds. But I just remember thinking like, oh, all they're doing is shooting three-pointers and dunking. 
<laughs> which is all the um, NBA is now. <laughs> which is all the NBA is now, and it's and it's not that way. It's not that way because the players are attempting. Uh, it, I mean, it's not because they're in exhibitions. Because it, you know, eventually it it it, can... it. It's a more entertaining game. If the fans could tell you what to do, they would say home runs, throw a hundred, three pointers, mm-hmm. and dunks. And for some reason, it just so happened that the math told you this was the right way to do it too. That, you're right. That would certainly. In, it's like in, the kids in the, the playground were always doing it correctly until all the geniuses in charge realized the kids were right. Yeah, it's it is strange. I mean, I, I, there's some. Uh, at least I think there's some uh, relationship there. I don't know if it's a perfect uh, analogy, but uh, so few analogies are. Now, this has caused me to look at the uh, the rosters from the 1998 McDonald's All American game. Somebody from my high school went to McDonald's All American game recently. No, when I was in that high school, I believe I was a freshman and he was a senior. Oh, who was it? Uh, his name was Casey Sanders. He was the center at Duke. Won a national oh. championship. Was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Well, that's great. It is. It is somehow. This somehow is good for you. Yeah. No. I mean, he. I wouldn't say we we were like best friends or anything, but like he knew me and my sister and my mom. Yeah. He, my, my sister was in his class and had some classes with him. And Gordon McGetty. Gordon McGetty was in this game, as was Richard Lewis. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Some big. Miles Swift. Noted avatar of Eric Longenhagen on Slack. Yeah, that's right. Dan Gadzerich. I believe it's Gadzerich, but yes. Yeah, maybe it's Gadzerich. <laughs> anyway, uh, Dan Gadzerich. Gads are always doing that. They're always reaching. <laughs> They're from uh, from The Hague. I think one of the few the few places that has the definite article on it. How, how would an, an Italian stereotype say that Gads reach? My wife. G- Gadzerich. <laughs> I hope that's how it would happen. Let me ask you about some of your scouting domestically, I guess, from what, last weekend. You you were towards the end of last week. You put together a, what I believe is a compendium, sort of compendium. An, an a, encyclopedic uh, compendium. Yeah, of uh, all manner of, um, I guess, prep and college uh, n- notes, and then a couple of uh, more detailed scouting reports. But here's one thing that you, you wrote about which I wanted to ask, which is as follows. Let's see, you were writing about... Florida State's Cole Sands, right-handed pitcher from Florida State. You wrote about mm-hmm. Jackson Lueck, uh, who I guess is on Florida State as well. Catcher Cal Raleigh and Drew Mendoza, all all in Florida State. Is that right? Correct. All those players. And then you write, in what already appeared to be a banner year for talent in Florida colleges and preps, things keep getting better. Tell me what constitutes a banner year for Florida colleges and prep. And are we talking about what, once every three years, ten years? What, what, is that, what does that mean to you? That's a good question. Let me uh, let me quickly pull up the Eric and I have a um, look how I corrected myself when I said me almost said me and Eric. Um, That's fine. You we, can say we have me a draft. You're talking. Yeah. We have a draft database where we uh, have updated the rankings that are already on FanGraphs with what we mm-hmm. currently think it is. So I'm taking a look to see where the guys from Florida rank. So we got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine of the top twenty-nine players are from Florida. Okay. That is the unusual. That almost a third of the first round picks come from one state. Now, obviously, Florida, Texas, Southern California, maybe Georgia. Those are sort of your power states that are going to have multiple first rounders almost every year. There have been. I think there was a year when Florida had no first round picks. I want to say a couple years ago. And well, Florida didn't. Florida, the whole state, high school and college, I believe, had no first round picks. I want to say two years ago. I believe the first yeah, pick was like 40th overall or something like that. Okay. All right. And and this year, as of today, I think there would be, I mean, I have nine. It could be eight or 10 or whatever. I have another one at 37. So it'd be 10 of the top 37. It's really, really good. And it's high school, it's college, it's hitters, it's pitchers. Also, Georgia is very strong after not being very strong last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the SEC, I think, is typically strong as it is. Let's see, Georgia is one, two, three, 
four of the top. So yeah, that would be 14 of the top 38 Florida and Georgia. It's a really high number. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, when I think MLB Pipeline put out their list uh, a little while ago, I just hadn't thought about it much. And I believe they had like 13 of the top 15 were in what would be described as the Southeast or some huge number like that, which basically everyone except for Terang and Madrigal. Terang, shortstop from Southern California High School. Madrigal, the second baseman, Oregon State. By the way, I love it when you do that. You know, I know. You know I knew that. you were going to ask me who they were, and I didn't want to I don't want to lose my I flow. I so appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, and then also Gor- Gorman and Libertor in Arizona. Uh, so yeah, maybe it was, you know, 16 out of 20 or something. It was some crazy number. And I remember then I started looking through, you know, my list, and I was like, oh, yeah, mine's kind of close to that too. And it seems like every, like, there's even a guy at South Alabama this year that's going to go in the top half of the first round. So even another guy at Stetson's going to go in the top half of the first round, guy at USF. Like, even the non traditional, like, non SEC colleges have three top half of the first round picks in the, uh, you know, sort of deep south. Mm hmm. So yeah, again, I don't have measures for what it was in the past and what it was seen at this juncture versus what it was on draft day and how signability and injuries change that and all that kind of thing. But this is like as extreme as I think it, it will be, especially at this juncture, which obviously could change. Can I ask you a question? How does a probable first round pick end up at South Alabama? I don't and know. And the player about whom you're speaking here is? Travis Swaggerty, center fielder. Uh, so as far as I know, I had never heard his name until the summer. He was the center fielder for Team USA, which included, mm-hmm. you know, Nick Madrigal and a bunch of these sort of guys everybody knew from back in high school that were, have kind of been, sorry, my dog's got a squeaky toy. Nope. It's great. <laughs> Love it. This is um, real people talking about these, these matters. And, and eating an inflatable donut. Mm-hmm. So there, there were guys on this Team USA that everybody, you know, every every team sends, you know, three guys to watch Team USA or whatever it is. And there were guys like Madrigal that everybody knew since high school that were, you know, sort of that typical, you know, he's a fourth or fifth rounder that wants second round money. All right, we'll let him go to school. And then he turned, you're like, ah, crap, we were wrong. He went the first round. Um, there's plenty of those guys. And Swaggerty, like, was arguably the best player, one of the top five players, basically. And I had never heard his name. I didn't know the name in high school. Maybe the Alabama area scouts. I'm not even sure he's from Alabama, but maybe those guys saw him as a freshman in South Alabama. That's also not a school that is, you know, you're seeing in matchups that often. So it could just be that this guy's coach, you know, called Team USA and said, I've got a guy. And that's when everybody found out about him. I mean, as far as I know, a bunch of people did not know that guy's name until they saw him this summer. Right. And then a similar thing with, now, I think what, uh, USF has had decent programs before? Yeah, the it's been going back and forth as far as what the strongest program is in Florida. Obviously, it's been Florida, the Gators, for a while. Uh, but, the you know, traditionally, it's Florida, Florida State, Miami. Those are the three, you know, sort of football powers. And they were also the three um, baseball powers for a while. Now, FIU is recruiting really well. Uh, FAU is not bad. Florida Gulf Coast has its years. USF and UCF have been playing pretty well. Jacksonville will have a prospect every now and then. Uh, and then obviously Stetson had Kluber and DeGrom. And now they have Logan Gilbert, who's probably going to go in the top half of the first round. So there's just a lot of like good – and obviously the junior colleges, I'd say, in Florida. are pro- It's probably the best state in the country for mm-hmm. junior colleges. So obviously there's a lot no, of – Yeah, it's, it, it's very – please be very clear. It's, it's not the best state in the country. <laughs> For, for junior okay. college baseball, yes. I'll be okay. very specific. So there's a lot of talent in, in the state of Florida, obviously, from like a high school uh, baseball perspective. But there's almost no reason for it to leave the state unless you're going to like an SEC school. There's a lot of instances of it coming into the state, especially like that mid-range kid in Atlanta that can't get into Georgia, Georgia Tech or an SEC school. They'll come to the junior college in Florida and then maybe go play at, you know, nearby FIU or, you know, something like that. That's interesting. That's a, that's a very interesting point where the, it essentially there are enough universities and or, you know, junior colleges 
essentially to to take on the talent. Is is there a state that you sense? And I'm not asking for necessarily a um, a deeply researched uh, response here, but just from having observed matters, is there a state do you feel produces a lot of talent, but does not? But a lot of that talent leaves the state. I know there was a run. I don't think it's necessarily been sustained. That Colorado had like mm-hmm. a ten year run where it was like. Roy Halladay, Luke Hochevar, Kevin Gaussman, a couple other guys where it was like, oh, a bunch of guys that didn't sign out of high school for whatever reason all ended up sort of working out. One way, I mean, Hochevar, I think, you know, was a high pick in the draft, obviously, but wasn't necessarily a good big leaguer. Although he made it. But I, I think it kind of goes and fits and starts with like certain states having a very productive, like pro track record with prospects that isn't traditionally known as a like you know guy sign out of high school here this is a hotbed but yeah i think if you're looking for like the bulk and even the high picks it's always any kind of sort or search you do is going to give you texas southern california florida and then georgia depending on maybe it's fourth maybe it's second depending on how you're measuring it Mm -hmm. and then those second tier areas are like you know northern california the carolinas you know, there's a couple areas like that where there, there's, you know, plenty of talent, especially in the Carolinas because there's a bunch of colleges there. So they sort of have to supply all those colleges, which gives them a better chance to develop the players. But yeah, like especially in the Southeast, like the density of programs that turn out pro talent is, I think, by far the most dense of anywhere else in the country. And I think that contributes to the density of high school talent. And obviously there's no reason for, you know, a fringe player in Nashville to go play at Boston College or, you know, USC or something like that. And so... Do you think you could construct, without even considering actually how many players come out of it, do you think you could construct an algorithm where you just consider, like, let's see, like, days of the year above 60 degrees, if that was, like, one variable, and then the other one was, you know, population, essentially? And, like, if those were your two inputs, if you could create a rough approximation or at least, like, a rankings of the states that were most likely to produce ballplayers? Yeah, and I, I think to do it best, you'd want to do it over like a 25-year period. So like right, I said, right. you know, Colorado doesn't end up the fifth best state because they had four good players come through. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what you know, I think Matt Kemp was from like Oklahoma or something. So obviously it, it could get skewed if Texas doesn't have a star for a 10-year period and then you have Matt Kemp and it kind of makes Oklahoma seem almost as good as Texas. But yeah, again, I, I don't think it would end up that different than what I just described. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think you'd end up with something like that. And I think that those factors are most of the reason is how much you can play, how many good schools there are, how how big a part of the culture it is, how many travel teams there are, you know, that sort of stuff is obviously a big part of it. So banner year for Florida. So uh, now we can do a couple specific names if you want there too. You were in person for some. You Some of this also was, uh, I guess, uh, reports that you were passing along from other sources. Yeah. So I'd say the, the, I guess, sort of the biggest story right now would be Nick Madrigal at Oregon State. He played in Arizona the first two weekends, so Eric saw him until he got hurt, which is a, you know, tooting my own horn, a story that I broke, that he broke his wrist and he'll be out for a month. He started, I don't remember, I think we had him sixth on our list going into the spring. He's gone up from there, and I think he's in the conversation, you know, at 1-1, even if a 5-7 second baseman doesn't actually go 1-1. Like, I think every team is considering him, and I think teams outside the top 10 think there's no way they get him, even with a broken wrist. So he's obviously, like, an outlier in almost every possible way, and he just got hurt, so... That seems like a pretty big story. I imagine this is the sort of guy you're interested in. He's never going to be French 5 eligible, so maybe you're less interested now. Do you think that Nick Madrigal is a player who would have been so clearly sought after 10 years ago or 20 years ago? No, he he's a perfect example of how the analytics are influencing the draft. And I mm-hmm. wouldn't 
I think sometimes that can be said by a scouty person in a derisive way. Like, mm-hmm. they're, oh, all these guys with their spin rates or, you know, they can't just scout or whatever. And, like, there's some merit to that. Like, there are teams that you kind of find out after the fact. Like, oh, they made this pick completely on metrics and forgot the guy's terrible makeup and is scared of the moment or, you know, whatever, which happens. But I would have a hard time seeing 20 years ago a scouting director saying, oh, yeah, this five seven second baseman. Like, oh, who's the example of that guy in the big leagues? Well, until Dustin Pedroia showed up, like, there really wasn't one. Like, I mean, I don't know old school references that much, but mm-hmm. I don't think Joe Morgan was 5'6". And so now you obviously have Altuve and Albies and Pedroia and, you know, even if you ex- expand a little more, like, you have guys like Daniel Murphy who isn't huge, Brian Dozier isn't huge, they're hitting home runs. Like, obviously at this point, the the idea of, like, a profile for certain positions is just, like, kind of exploded. And so yeah, when you and look to be at- clear, there were, there were small middle infielders, but they were also... They had the, the sort of power you might expect from a person that size, roughly. Yeah, they weren't standout players. So, yeah, if somebody says, who's the guy in the big that looks like Nick Madrigal and the players I named, just they didn't exist, then you'd mm-hmm. say, oh, David Eckstein and then this utility infielder. You'd be like, yeah, and you're talking about this guy with the number one pick. Like, don't take that guy. Like, now there are outlier, like, all-star level players that look like this guy. And so whether that's a, you know, a weird blip that this happened now or a function of the changing game or us you know, teaching little players to hit home runs, which they would never would have done even 10 years ago. Like, I, I don't know why this is happening, but there's another one, as, as DJ Collard would say. DJ Collard would say a lot of things. But he would also say another one. So the short scouting report is he's a 70 runner uh, with 70 back control. And he's, I'd say, above average, maybe plus, maybe even a little more defensively at second base. He can be an emergency shortstop, but it's a little David Eckstein-y with like an average arm that, you know, if you put him deep in the hole, the throw's going to be a little short. But, uh, you know, teams like Tampa and Oakland, I don't think would have trouble necessarily putting him at short. And I'd say the raw power is probably a 40, but if you give him a, you know, a better quality bat and the whatever baseball we have now and tell him to lift the ball more and it's 45 raw power, like I can't tell you he doesn't get to it, you know, to average raw power, which would be 15 to 20 homers. And so mm-hmm. if you tell me you got a guy that's a, you know, plus hitter with average game power, that's a 70 runner and a plus defender at second base and can play shortstop for you and is, you know, running around like his hair's on fire the whole time and was a guy in high school at this size. I mean, you could argue he's, uh, you know, this year's Black Swan. That I, the example I used was... Uh-oh. Yeah, I used the example <laughs> with pitchers and obviously some people you know, got on me because I was saying, oh, here's a black swan. There's been four in 10 years. They're like, well, the whole idea of a black swan is there's not four in 10 years. And I was like, well, no, it's more the inspiration and the, you know, the concept, the idea to get to an undervalued area. Well, well wait, is- it's not necessarily even four in 10. It's, it is four in 10 years, but you also have to look like four out of how many ever like it was four out of four of- became like almost all-star level pitchers. Like that, but, that, but, that but, outcome but, is a little black swanish. Right, and they're also like out of thousands of different possible, possible like candidates. Right, I mean it's yeah. a, out of a sample of. Th- no, this is what I said. Players. It was. I think people that looked at it a certain way said, "Oh, the concept is, you know, once every fifty years or hundred years, there's some huge recession no one can see coming, and this process allows you to see it coming or be prepared if it does." And you're saying it happened four times in ten years and no one's paying attention. Like that's pretty silly. And I go, eh, have a little more of an open mind. I'm, I'm not saying this is the exact same thing. I'm saying the thought process can reveal things to us, even if they're not technically black swans. But in this case, if we're talking about five, seven second basemen that are going to go in the top ten picks, 
I'm pretty sure that's never happened before. And obviously the idea of the 5-7, you know, uh, all-star quality hitter in the big leagues that might even be able to hit for power, that now has become, you know, less Black Swanee. But each individual one, Albies and Altuve and this guy, they all seemed incredibly rare. If any one of them was playing in the 90s, they would talk about how rare they were and say, oh, I guess Ichiro is the closest thing we can find to this guy. So, you know, it's another one where there's a couple examples recently that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a predictable thing. And this guy was a... You know, he was a player out of high school. Like, if he would have signed for any bonus, he would have gone in, I don't know, fourth round or something like that. Like, like teams liked it. It was just, you know, it's even harder to take a 5'7 second baseman out of high school. So this uh, this is the last question I asked. Um, it's kind of, maybe it's a sort of question in two parts, too. We mentioned the, the pitcher out of USF, uh, Shane McClanahan. Is that right? Mm-hmm. It appears as though you saw him. You have video of him. I did, yeah. I saw him on Saturday. And this is a this is a college pitcher who you saw touch 100 at least once. Yes, just one time. Just one time. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, in terms of his plays, I think you had him fifth along with Eric on the list for 2018 draft prospects. Is he is he right around there still? Yep, he's. I mean, he's in the top five. He's probably moved up a spot or two since then. But we had both heard and. I guess I specifically, I had seen him. Uh, and he, he's an interesting case because I believe he was committed to like Charleston Southern or like a smaller school like that in high school. And he threw in the mid 80s. And then like right before the draft, like within a month or two, he was suddenly 89 to 91. And I believe he got some sort of waiver to get out of going to the smaller school and got to USF. And then I believe it was his freshman year he pitched some and then he blew out his elbow, had Tommy John and came back throwing harder. He may have been throwing harder and then blew out and then came back and continued throwing hard. I don't remember the exact process, but I remember somebody told me like, hey, this this guy's throwing really hard now, not just 90-91. And it would make some sense if you went from mid-80s to mid-90s in two years that your arm may not be able to handle that. But yeah, he was definitely, at this time last year, he, he would have been high on my uh, you know year ahead 2018 rankings. Okay. Um, and so I heard in this fall and uh, the scrimmages before the season started, like, yeah, this guy's, you know, 92 to 98, touch 100, two above average off-speed pitches, can throw some strikes. He's already a Tommy John. It's a little, you know, throwover pitcher. It's not huge. He's like 6'2", 185. Like, if you want to, you know, nitpick, there's some things to nitpick on. But this guy could probably pitch in a big league bullpen right now. And he's got, you know, about as high-octane stuff as you're going to see in college. Uh, and then that's almost exactly what I saw. And there were... I don't know, four or five uh, scouting directors there and a ton of scouts. And I confirmed the 100 with the scout that was standing next to me because I don't, I don't like the, the rogue readings. But he, there were times, I believe, in the fourth inning where he dropped down to like 90, 95, throwing sinkers. And then he'd reach back for 97 and 99. For one at bat, mm-hmm. I believe he threw three fastballs, 97 and 99 in the fourth inning, I believe, after he hit 100 in the first inning. And so I'm like, all right, if we're trying to project this guy to have the command to start – him choosing to throw two seamers for a couple endings and then having this in his back pocket the whole time. Like, yeah, there's a little recoil to his delivery. There's, you know, a little effort at times. But the fact that he's choosing to do this, like, speaks to his, you know, malleability to different approaches. And, like, he's trying to do something different. You know, it could just be that his, you know, size and already having elbow surgery will limit his durability and force him to be in the bullpen. Like, you know, obviously nobody knows at this point. Uh, Everybody thought Chris Sale's arm would have exploded at this point in his career. So, you know, what do any of us know? And the one predictor we know of guys having arm trouble is throwing hard, which he obviously does and already had arm trouble. So, you know, in some ways we don't know what's going to happen, but if you're, you know, making the top of the draft board, Madrigal and McClanahan are, you know, for me, two of the top three or four players right now. And they're, uh, they're both pretty unique. The top left-hander selected, the top collegiate left-hander selected in last year's draft with A.J. Puck. 
And AJ Puck is a giant person. He's six, yeah, six seven, seven or like 240 yeah. or something. Yeah, he's a giant person. He does not resemble McClanahan. However, uh, two years ago, the top uh, collegiate left-hander selected was Tyler J., um, who is even smaller. Is, yeah, yeah, just a little over six feet, if that. And he was selected six overall. His uh, run through the minors thus far has not been without checkered. Yeah, it's been checkered. How how for you does how does McClanahan compare to Jay? Uh, more fastball, little less breaking ball, little more feel, uh, comparable changeup. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jay had not had surgery yet, so I mean, I want to say, where did Jay go? Like fifth or sixth overall? Yeah, sixth. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, if but I'm there saying, were always questions about because he, I don't, I, maybe he, he also made, was like, one start as a yeah. To he, I don't think he, I don't think he started until or didn't he make some starts in his draft year? He, I he think was, he made one maybe like a, like opening yeah. day or something like. I that. think he was even in relief on Team USA, which I, I mean, Dylan Tate went through as a reliever his whole career and on Team USA and then started that whole spring and it, it seemed like his arm wasn't quite ready to handle it. He kind of tailed off late and then tailed off a lot in Pro Bowl and then eventually bounced back. Uh, it sounds like Jay did a similar thing and just hasn't quite bounced back all the way and they're not going to make him a starter someone as a result. McClanahan has always been a starter his whole career and I guess at least the last year or two has been throwing this hard. I guess which you know could have led to him blowing out. I don't know. I don't. I don't know what his body's doing. Yeah, so I wouldn't say it's the same as Jay in that there is less concern about his uh, how he fits in a starting role because he's done it and there's three pitches and there's a track record of some, not necessarily durability because obviously he's already had surgery, but uh, you know being able to throw the innings mm-hmm. and also you know go, being able to go deep in a game and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I would say he's better uh, at the same stage, but I mean, Jay went sixth and I have McClanahan third right now. So I mean, it's not like they're amazingly different. Uh, last thing. Oh yeah. Oh, so, so with regard to that, what are you seeing in terms of velocities? Uh, obviously velocities are increasing at a pretty considerable rate. The major league level, I assume that holds true throughout affiliated baseball. What are you seeing uh, thus far among, among amateur prospects? They still, uh, they still know how to chuck it. <laughs> are they throwing so, harder than in the past? Yeah. I would say in, in keeping with the sort of slow climb in the pros, uh, there's been sort of a slow climb in amateur ranks uh i was at pg national this year which is the the big showcase like the week after the draft in june and there were guys that hit 95 that weren't huge prospects which Mm -hmm. 10 years ago if a guy hits 95 he is a prospect just because of that and now if a guy hits 95 you're like ah he was like 90 92 and then he hit a four and a five when he was throwing as hard as he could and he couldn't throw him for strikes. And it's just kind of fringe off speed, not a lot of projection, a little bit of effort. Like not, not my kind of guy. Like that's pretty typical these days. And then that guy becomes, you know, the eighth inning guy as a freshman for, you know, South Carolina or whatever. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, that's not the case. And I think that relatively mirrors in the big leagues that, I don't know, 10 years ago, if a reliever was sitting 94, 95, it's like, oh yeah, this guy throws really hard. And now it's like, well, if that guy's in a plus breaking ball, like he's going to get DFA'd. <laughs> And the the first game that I saw this spring was uh, two high school pitchers who both, I mean, I had, we had them in the 20s and 30s, and now we have them both in the teens. They both performed very well. Mason Denneberg, uh, Merritt Island High School in Florida, and Carter Stewart mm-hmm. from, how would you say that? I'm curious how you would pronounce that high school for Carter Stewart. All right, sorry, I've, uh, I've uh, navigated well, away, but I'm, uh, I'm right there now with you. Yeah, it is E-A-U is the first word. Oh, and then the second word is G-A-L-L-I-E. I would probably say O'Galley. Yep, that's it. That's where, it uh, sounds Prince... a lot like O'Galley. O'Galley, doesn't it? Yeah, that's where Prince Fielder went also.
So the, yeah, that's where those two. They're both from Florida. Uh, Prep Baseball Report had a big preseason tournament, and those are the two premier prospects. They had them pitch back to back games. A bunch of other prospects were there, but those are the two best ones. And Denneberg was ninety three to ninety five with a plus breaking ball for a little while, and he's also a top five round guy as a catcher. So he was obviously very impressive and athletic and all that kind of stuff. Carter Stewart, uh, who I've nicknamed Notorious RPM because he has a three thousand spin rate curveball. And where did you get that data? Those are publicly available. Uh, I think that was on the the telecast for the Perfect Game All-American or or maybe for the big events. TrackMan puts it on the website. I don't know. They're publicly. Oh, and when you're, he pitched a tournament of stars where you can follow along on your phone. I don't think you can save the data or they just give you sort of leaders and trailers kind of thing. Uh, but you, you got to like take screen caps. <laughs> of every pitch, yeah. Eats up that memory <laughs> pretty fast. Uh, but yeah, I believe at like four different events, he, he showed curveball spin rates over 3,000. Um, so, and that was another one where scouts saw, like, I, I think I saw his breaking ball at PG national said, Oh, it's future 70. So scouts project the 70 breaking ball and he was sort of 88 to 92, but he's like, I believe six, 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 five, like 200 pounds, very loose and athletic scratch golfer, uh, you know, kind of all the indicators you want quick arm, uh, that he'll throw harder. And I had some scouts and I know Eric told me the same thing. Like, Oh, if this guy gets into the mid nineties and the breaking ball doesn't disappear, like he's going to go like mid to upper mid first round. And I was at his first start. He was ninety one, ninety four, and the breaking ball wasn't quite as as crisp. But you know, you could tell it was still in there. And breaking balls with you know long arms. First start of the year. Whoops. Oh boy. Uh, yeah, I almost knocked over my clipboard. Things are starting uh, to get physical. Hey, Kylan McDaniel. Yeah. Wait. Let me let me let me finish this thought. Um. So so then I you know wrote him up. He was very good and was a little better than expected. And then I was told he hit ninety seven in his next start and was hit ninety six in the sixth inning. And the curveball was even better. And so now it's like, okay, it just so happened that the Prep Baseball Report tournament had these two pitchers, and they're both, I don't know, up six or eight or ten spots from uh, from where they started, which, again, both in Florida. Look at that. That's where all the good people are, Carson. <laughs> Matter of some debate. Well. Matter... Of some debate. What's not a matter of some debate is that you have fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio, Kylan McDaniel. Do you want me to drop my clipboard again? Yeah, sure. For effect. Dramatic effect. Very good. Here comes the dog. (laughs) That has been... Well, first of all, I'm going to say... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say thank you, Kylan McDaniel. You're welcome. Okay, and now I'll say this. That has been lead prospect analyst emeritus. Oh, okay. Lead prospect analyst emeritus, Kylan McDaniel. I'm Carson Stooley, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. And this has been Fangraphs Audio.